0: Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Today we bring you an interview with former Prime Minister of Australia, the Honourable Kevin Rudd. Mr Rudd was the 26th Prime Minister of Australia and held this office from 2007 until the Labour leadership spill of June 2010. Prior to joining the Australian Parliament, Kevin Rudd had a career in public service including diplomatic postings as well as policy and chief of staff roles in both federal and state governments. In this interview, he is proud to point out that he has played all the roles of the key characters in Yes Minister, including Bernard, Sir Humphrey, Minister and Prime Minister. This episode is different from our usual Exec Insights format. Like many podcast interviews over the last few months, the interview took place over Zoom with an audience of 120 public servants who are current or former participants of our QUT Public Sector Management Program. Mr Rudd answered questions submitted by the group, including his proudest achievements as PM and his advice for practising public servants. This is an edited version of a longer webinar recording, which is available through the QUTX website. The event was brought into being by QUTX colleagues, Dr Tony Peloso, who was the host, and Catherine Batch, who was event impresario. Enjoy Kevin Rudd on Leading for Public Purpose.
1: In your time as Prime Minister, so what we did, we actually asked across all of the jurisdictions questions that people would like to ask you. One of the questions certainly is, in your time as Prime Minister, what is the one thing that you're most proud of?
2: Yeah, I'm not very good at answering those questions. The simple reason is uh, as Prime Minister, I was engaged across the field. So... Let me just list two or three which come to the top of mind. Because I'm by, cre- by nature a creature of public policy and by training um, international policy, um, for me the most important achievement was to secure Australia at the top global table called the G20. My predecessors at prime minister uh, for a long time had sought to secure Australian membership of uh, core global institutions. Uh, Bob Hawke sought to secure uh, us membership of what was then being debated as the G10. And so through some frenetic uh, personal and uh, national diplomacy, uh, when the global financial crisis hit and the United States government was then engaged in internal debate about how to uh, create a body beyond the G7, which would represent the principal economies of the future, who could then collectively decide what we could do to stabilise the global economy and to stabilise uh, global financial systems. A, um, I persuaded, together with others, the United States to go for a G20 rather than a narrower body, which would have excluded Australia. Two, uh, having secured that, uh, then worked frenetically to populate its agenda to make it substantive and useful for all governments and international community and three, then, to persuade President Obama to make it a permanent institution and not a temporary one associated with that crisis. So for giving Australia, as it were, a public policy voice in the central policy councils of the world uh, for the first time, really, uh, I think that is a fairly significant achievement. And I am pretty confident that had we not uh, grasped that by the neck, it would have escaped us. Uh, so. I say that as one international policy. The second one, I think, at a symbolic level nationally was the national apology uh, to help in the process of reconciliation with Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. But then to put uh, flesh on the bones of that through the national closing the gap strategy. And the reason I emphasize that, though it's often still much criticized a decade later, is because it established clear annual benchmarks for success or failure in closing the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians in health and in housing and in employment and in longevity um, uh, and in um, other areas. And we've achieved some progress on that, but I think at last we've got to the stage where the old forms of racism of the past are no longer acceptable on either side of politics. And that, I think, was one of the enduring legacies of the apology and the closing the gap framework which came with it.
1: Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, well, I'm going to take a side a sidebar. You mentioned you mentioned a, a magic name, uh, President Obama. So, do you have some reflection or some insights that you think would be would be useful and insight in terms of relationships and and uh, Australia's standing and?
2: Well, President Obama and I uh, did not know each other prior to his election. Um, uh, I think I can share this because I think I've written it elsewhere. Uh, when he was uh, elected, I mean, we were delighted, those of us who followed American politics, because he was this African-American who'd been um, elected after several hundred years of uh, entrenched racism in the United States, notwithstanding the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, etc., and the reforms of the 60s. So, uh, so I'd followed his campaign quite keenly, um, and uh, uh, he had rejoiced in the fact that uh, when he was a candidate trying to obtain recognition that he'd been attacked directly by John Howard during the US presidential election campaign. Um, uh, Howard was prime minister. I was leaving the opposition at the time. So uh, when I won the election, uh, he used that as, um, I won't say, a significant um, development in his own political campaign, but he found it encouraging. I wrote him a letter after he became president of the United States as president-elect, which began in handwriting, Dear Barack you poor bastard, Uh, welcome to messiah syndrome, Uh, infinite expectations, finite resources. Others call it public policy. (laughs) Uh, So um, anyway, when I met him, um, he found that the most amusing letter he got from any other head of government. Um, And we um, developed a pretty strong relationship and we worked intensely and collaboratively on the G20, on stabilising the global financial crisis, uh, we also worked a lot on uh, global climate change action in the early days around the difficulties of the Copenhagen Conference of uh, December 2009. So uh, we, be, we established a strong working relationship, so did our staff, um, and uh, it was the days where Australian officials were working semi-seamlessly, the most senior levels, with the, um, with the White House, with the German Chancellor's Office, uh, with uh, number 10, uh, as well as with uh, our Chinese friends in Zhongnanhai uh, a decade or so ago in dealing with the challenges of the global financial crisis. And it worked effectively.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad that I asked that question. What a wonderful what a wonderful story. And he would have loved that Australian lack of respect, but actually kindness and, and trust. I think that I'm sure he remembers that very well. <laughs> now, let's go to um, and, and given the audience that we have today and your experience. So... Here's a, here's a question that's been directly put to me to put to you. How can we in Australia develop sustainable public policy, given we have these big differences between regional issues versus those that some call the Canberra bubble?
2: Yeah, well, somewhat contrary to the tradition often associated with the Labor Party, I've always been a Federalist rather than a Centralist. Perhaps that's because I'm the son of a Queensland dairy farmer. I'm not sure. Um, But um, I've always had a view that the federation uh, matters um, and that the states matter, um, that they're not inconveniences, political inconveniences, which is often the underlying assumption of uh, prime ministers, both uh, Liberal and Labor, uh, in decades past. So, secondly, um, in terms of dealing with uh, uh, regional differences, Uh, The reality is um, all Australians should be guaranteed a comparable uh, level of service delivery in terms of, let's call them national public goods in health and education uh, and the rest. And because of the differentiated uh, income raising potential uh, of the various states and territories of the federal jurisdiction, uh, it therefore means that you've got to have some redistributive mechanism back to smaller, more remote, and frankly, more difficult to service states. And uh, that in the trade is called horizontal fiscal equalisation. And so understanding the principles of that, and not just regarding it as a a pain in the the derriere, as folks in Sydney and Melbourne often do, um, is important in holding the fabric of the federation together. Remember, we have a population half the size of California, with a continent the size and country the size of uh, the landmass of the United States minus Alaska. So holding this show together with a thin population and therefore an expensive infrastructure to sustain is a challenge. The second point I'd make is in terms of uh, holding Australia together is along these lines. Uh, I also sought to turn um, the Council of Australian Governments uh, into the workhorse of the Federation. And I had familiarity with that because when I was uh, working uh, as the Director General of the Cabinet Office in the Queensland Government back in the Mesolithic period, um, when I was a state government official, it was a joke, by the way, I wasn't really alive in the Mesolithic
1: period. I wasn't sure if I could laugh or not.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it could have been Paleolithic, I'm not sure. But um, certainly I was dealing with a number of Neolithic men at the time, but that's a different story. The, um, I had a very acute sense of... Um, the value of what states delivered within the Federation. And so therefore, if you were to do a, um, a policy research uh, history of the period of uh, my prime ministership and when we are in office and that slice between 2007, and 2013, you will find in any against any matrix that this is the most intensely active period of uh, national policy reform between the Commonwealth and the states I think in practically any period uh, of history, with the one exception being uh, the period of the so-called new federalism uh, under Bob Hawke, beginning in 1991 through to Keating's loss of office in 1996. And that's the period where I was um, a, uh, leading the Queensland, as it were, officials delegation, uh, wearing a different hat. So whether it was, uh, frankly, national housing reform and the birth of things like the National Rental Affordability Scheme, Most acutely, the National Health and Hospitals Reform Scheme, uh, which we decided in the special, the COAG meeting of, from memory, April of 2010, which uh, formed the fabric of, frankly, the new funding relationship between the feds and the states on public hospital funding, or other areas of reform in terms of national closing the gap, my approach was the only way in which to use the French, you get shit done in this country, is to get the premiers and the prime ministers regularly around the table, around major national reform projects uh, in order to make them work. Uh, now it's, uh, as Bismarck once observed to the business of politics, it's, it's not a process to be observed up close because it re- resembles the process of assembling sausages in a sausage factory. But it's the only way in which you get stuff done as opposed to just issuing press statements about getting stuff done. And so that uh, record of achievement, uh, both in health and in education and in housing and in, in Indigenous reconciliation, uh, and the first national agreement on closing the gap between the Commonwealth and the states, points to the essential importance of that being, as it were, uh, if you like, the precursor of the national cabinet that we have seen at work during this uh, emergency processes of the COVID 19 crisis.
1: Um, let's come back to that. Now, here, here's a continuing question. Someone has asked: When there was a time, there was a time when public policy was often bipartisan and spanned a number of years or election cycles, regardless of government. Someone's opinion. Do you see a time when we, as a country, may move back to an era where policy development is longitudinal and not partisan in development and execution?
2: I think there are two preconditions for that. Let me go to the first and the most controversial for this gathering precondition of all, which is the internal culture of the mainstream political parties. I think up until, if I'm being fair about the days of Mr Abbott, uh, there was a reasonable degree of policy consensus across a number of major areas of reform for the nation, often hard to achieve. Keating superannuation reforms, for example, were bitterly contested initially by the federal conservatives. But um, by and large, beyond that, when I look back to the period that we're able to achieve major reforms in the period of the new federalism uh, in the first half of the 90s, that culture was still alive. It began to unravel during the Howard period. But can I say, with the arrival of um, Abbott, Uh, what we found was that any single policy proposal that we put forward as a government, irrespective of whether we had an electoral mandate for it or not, uh, became automatically at that point a political uh, football match, ideally from Abbott's point of view with maximum outpouring of blood and gore. And it didn't matter whether it was an Australian candidature for uh, the UN Security Council or whether it was uh, mainstream Indigenous policy reform, um, or whether it was um, the development of a national curriculum for the education system. Uh, There was a view in politics um, by Mr Abbott in particular different, I think, to Mr Howard in degree, whereby he saw everything as an oppositional opportunity. And to contrast that with, frankly, the current crisis, uh, Mr Albanese's approach to lending the current government a high degree of bipartisan support for the measures currently being taken by the Feds in response to the COVID crisis, both on public health uh, and in terms of economic recovery. So, as I said, there is a culture at play here, which um, I cannot attend to externally because I'm not a member of the Liberal Party, but it actually needs to adjust for the long-term future because if it's simply driven by populist politics and permanently driven by, uh, let's call it, the retail politics of uh, fear and anxiety, then it's very difficult to construct a policy consensus around that, or let alone have elections based on public policy, because instead they become elections based on how anxious and how fearful can I make the voter base in order to make them vote conservative, as opposed to the dreaded socialists over there uh, who are going to um, uh, kill the economy and flood the country Uh, with migrants and refugees from anywhere that you care to mention. So that's the political point. The public policy point is this. You know something? um, National policy reform is much more achievable if you have a culture of policy innovation alive and well uh, within the ranks of the senior bureaucracy, federal and state as well. One of the reasons why we are able to succeed in those two periods of what I describe as high federalism, first half of the 90s, and then secondly, uh, in our period in office, uh, 7 to 13, um, based on any empirical analysis of what was agreed to and what wasn't agreed to, was that there was a strong uh, professional relationship among senior officials at the central agencies level, PM&C and Treasury, Premier and Cabinet and Heads of State Treasuries, um, and from periodically through line ministers, uh, working together to as it were, drive the policy agenda forward because the political class, to be fair to them, and I've been both Humphrey and the minister, I've been both Humphrey and the prime minister. In fact, I began my life as Bernard uh, as a uh, political staffer for Wayne Goss. uh, That was after I was a diplomat. So I've kind of been around the racetracks a bit here, Um, is that one of the big differentiating factors is when you have a politically literate but not politically aligned senior mandarinate in Canberra and in the States uh, who can drive policy reform agendas forward onto the cabinet table, onto the premiers and the prime minister's desk, and advance an argument that this is a good thing for the nation, a good thing for the state, and whatever your partisan politics might be, it's probably a good thing for you politically also. I think they're the two elements I would put on the table for you.
1: Now, you, this is this is uh, something a little more personal for our, our listeners. So in its history, there are over 16,000 people who graduated from the Public Sector Management Program. There are approximately 120 people who are actually on this um, webinar at the moment. And these are folks who are out there every day doing their absolute best with the, the pressures that they're always under and the extra pressures that they are experiencing right at this minute and every one of these people in the program they're actually working on what we call a workplace project so this is an over and above piece that, that they're focused on and they're really focused on on creating delivering a piece of public value so I just thought it might be really lovely if you can say something really personal um, about, about you know getting on with things right in this very interesting time and as you suggest a, a relatively conflicted time in politics and and globally as well Hmm. let's take it to to, to about these folks who are out there you know in Darwin or Alice Springs or um, Wollongong or somewhere like that just uh, in their roles
2: yeah I mean the the reality is the Australian nation um, together with the states which make up its federation advance on the basis of um, two things Uh, one uh, that um Uh, the laws we enact as a nation uh, through the legislative process and the governments of the day, and two, uh, the reforms we propose and then implement through the effectiveness or otherwise of our professional and independent public service. And without those two things working in tandem, the nation does not advance. In fact, it enters into stasis and regresses. And having spent the last five years of my life living in New York, And and observing firsthand the chaotic nature of the United States public health system pre-COVID crisis, if you want to see if you want a case study of dysfunctional federations, where neither where there is neither an independent professional um, and um, policy-driven mandarinate teamed up with public policy-minded legislators, uh, then the United States of America at present. And provides us with a leading example. So I say that by way of, if you are, conceptual introduction to my uh, thank you to each and every one of you who have chosen to be um, professional public servants. A, it's an essential career for the nation. B, uh, those of you in management positions, which I assume is most of you who are engaging in this public policy program, uh, form part of a national elite core, uh, which determines so much of the success or failure of what we do as a country long-term. And three, despite the fact that you've all got to navigate politics of one form or another, high politics between parties, low politics within parties, including sometimes those um, shits who run around the place as ministerial staffers, which you've all got to put up with. uh, The bottom line is still continuing to um, execute your craft of public policy development and implementation is essential. And reminding ministers through the disciplines of the cabinet process and how you construct uh, the elementary machinery of a cabinet submission around what's the policy objective here? Two, what are the alternatives to achieving that objective other than the one that's contained in this submission? Three, what does the proposal cost and how could the resources be used elsewhere? Four, how do we know whether uh, this uh, measure of legislation or administration is going to succeed or not In other words, what are the measures of success and when can we measure it? And five, when's the um, uh, optimal period for rolling review as to whether this still remains valid to the public policy purposes that have been set? Unless you folks in the Mandarinate carry that discipline forward, let me tell you, those in the political class who are doing hand-to-hand combat with the um, battle of the six o'clock news in order to politically survive, until nine o'clock the next morning. It won't get done. So that job lies with you. So that's why I value in office and out of office, uh, the professional contribution of an independent, uh, confident, professional mandarinator.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights. If you would like more information about QUTX programs for you or your organisation, search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of professional and executive development programs. Thanks to Sue York for sound recording and editing. See you next time.